It's like if you can find bliss within yourself, nothing is impossible. Suffering's a matter of perspective and yep. suffering's a matter of discipline. Yes. You have to get people inspired. You have to get people inspired to achieve their own vision, but to be willing to work to achieve that vision. The Buddhist path, it's not about like no pain, no gain. It's like you're trying to push beyond suffering. Hello and welcome to Unstoppable. I'm your host, Kerwin Ray, and today I had the great pleasure of interviewing Sanjay Rawal. Sanjay has worked in human rights and international development sectors for over 15 years in over 40 countries. He did this before focusing on his love for photography and storytelling by focusing on making films and telling stories that matter. Sanjay is actually a lifelong runner and he was happy to lose the pounds he gains on a project that he created called 3100 Run and Become. And it gives us a behind the scenes look at the most elusive and elite multi-day race in the world, the self-transcendence 3100 mile race. So today we talk about spiritual fitness in a very new light. And we also do it with an incredible guy, Sanjay Rawal. This is not one you're gonna to wanna to miss. This is unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business. But we do it from an immersive but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com ladies and gentlemen it's my absolute pleasure to welcome to unstoppable sanjay rawal man thank you for coming down it's a great day in Santa Monica. Oh, it's a beautiful day in Santa Monica. The clouds are shining. The rain is falling. And, uh, mate, you had a massive trek to get here. Thank you so much. You came all the way from Venice. Yeah. For those who don't know, Venice is a, a hardy 2.1 miles away yeah. from here. So it's like I started a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, right. So you, like a little you, pilgrimage. The, pil the pilgrimage. On my knees. Yeah, crawling, wow. Crawling to the shrine. I can of, see of the blood like coming through on your, on, your, on your boyfriend jeans. It's like, uh... <laughs> mate, it's super great to have you here. Um, you know, as I said earlier, uh, I'm really excited to see where this conversation can go. But for those perhaps who don't know who Sanjay is, why don't you just give us maybe, uh, yeah, a little bit of an insight into who is Sanjay and, and, and yeah, why are we here? Well, uh, why are and we but here? But when I say why are we here, I'm not meaning us, I'm meaning earth, that, I'm meaning spirit, I'm meaning souls. So the big question, not the little one. That's either the easiest <laughs> question to answer or the, the hardest question to answer. But... I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. You know, I've, I've worked in business. I've worked in humanitarian aid. I've worked for governments. I've started foundations. But for the last 12 years, I've been making movies and documentary movies. And in the States, they've done pretty well. My most recent movie was called 3100 Run and Become. It's about the world's longest running race, 3,100 miles. People have to run 60 miles a day for 52 days all around a half-mile sidewalk loop in the summer of New York City. Holy smokes. People might wonder why on earth someone would do that or 
how crazy one would have to be to do that. But to show how that's possible in the movie, we interweave a Navajo narrative. Uh, we spend time hunting with the Kalahari Bushmen, and we spend time with these very, very esoteric, um, quasi-masochistic monks in the highlands of Japan. But the idea is bliss. It's like if you can find bliss within yourself, nothing is impossible. Mm. It's not a supper fest. It's not mind over matter. The mind has nothing to do with it. It's all about the heart. And it's kind of interesting because science for the longest time has been you know, looking at ways that they can, I guess, hack performance to find that runner's high or that performance high. And you're kind of taking a very different kind of angle on it. You're looking at more from less about the scientific aspects of it and more about the, I'm going to assume, the spiritual side of it. Well, so science has only been a thing in the West for 300, 400 years mm. since the age of enlightenment in, in, in Europe. In the East, people have been studying these great questions of life, but they know that the mind has no capacity to even approach it. Like, how do you measure something that's not measurable? How do you measure the infinite? Science is never, for all the good things that it does, it's never going to be able to answer those questions. So in this movie, we're not looking at something new. We're looking at forms of life that sustained humanity for hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, you know from your work, we were all incredibly mobile, incredibly physical beings until halfway through the Industrial Revolution. Like now with cars and buses and planes and trains, no one even walks to the grocery store, much less walks 30 miles for food or sustenance, much less walks 1,000 miles every few years for pilgrimage. The idea of the physical being separated from the spiritual is an absolutely modern fallacy. And that's what this movie looks at. It looks at not just the possibility of running 3,100 miles, but how if those physical activities are taken as a pilgrimage, how it's the most natural thing in the world. It's the most traditional, it's the most ancient, it's the most human. And it goes beyond just the goal of completing a 3,100-meter race. Yeah. Or 3,100-mile yeah. race. Yeah, I mean, people would say, like, when you summit a mountain, you know, you probably, you have a, a, an absolute high when you get to the mountain and a sense of accomplishment but in that analogy, the journey isn't over. Mm. It's like the top of the summit is actually the starting point. You've got to make it back down. At the same time, it's like there's so many steps along the way from training to preparation to base camps to the final ascent that make the trip what it was. And sometimes people can have incredibly fulfilling experiences without that summit. So if you look at the trip as an actual journey, as a pilgrimage, then it's less about your success or failure being pegged to one certain event. So in many respects, what I'm hearing is you've almost dissected running as a, as a pathway or a doorway to spiritual awakening. I, I, I would say that, but in, in, a, in a more humble way. It's, it is. It, it, just, it just is. It mm. has been. It's maybe a rediscovery. It's maybe new for us because yeah. we haven't run with these notions in mind. But for example, we, we spent time on the Navajo Nation in southwestern, the southwestern United States, in Arizona, with a champion ultramarathoner who comes from a lineage of um, runners and, and spiritual medicine men who look at running. In the United States, natives, the indigenous, didn't actually have horses or like domesticated mo modes of transportation until about 450 years ago. So it gives a glimpse into the way we were. They ran, mm. and they ran dozens of miles, if, if not longer. The Navajo and Southwestern natives say that when you run, your feet are praying to Mother Earth. You're Ooh. breathing in Father Sky. 
You're asking them for their blessings. You're showing them that you're willing to work for their blessings. And when we spend time in the Kalahari doing what they call persistence hunting, you know, chasing animals for gigantic animals for one or two days, tiring them out, and then getting close enough to them that a small, minuscule, you know, human being could kill a gigantic elk with just one short arrow or a few rocks. The traditional evolutionary biology uh, thesis is that we evolved as human beings because we became good hunters, that we could run long distances and and out-endure these animals. But the Bushmen say that's nonsense. The Bushmen say that when we took this bipedal form, we were able to take energy in from the earth in a way that other primates couldn't. That was our strength. We prayed with our feet. We opened our hearts to the essence of the energies around us. And that's what gave them the kind of tactical advantage in the savanna. So it always starts with consciousness Mm. and the physical. It doesn't start with physical exertion. And how important is the suffering component when it comes to these practices? You know, you're talking about a you know one to two day continuous hunt where there's no sleep, in most cases no food, and probably a lack of water based on what an individual will be able to carry, or you know a Navajo who's perhaps running between um, tribes or communities, and they might be running consistently for, in some cases, what I'm going to assume, or what kind of distances and, and periods would these guys run for? You know, they, they would run to trade. They would run for religious purposes. So it could be six, 10-day runs. Wow. Um, With between, sleep? Like sleeping? Yeah, but between 60 and, and, and 80 miles a day through wow. very harsh terrain. And no nikes? Uh, no, probably close to barefoot or yeah, in right. moccasins. So the, the thing is, it's like from a Western standpoint, we look at physical progress as a function of suffering. Now, if you talk to any like top endurance athlete, they'll say suffering can't be a part of the equation. It's like, yeah, you have to understand where your boundaries are and push. But it's like if you go past that boundary point, if you push that envelope too drastically, you get injured. And in these long multi-year training cycles to get to be a top marathoner or a top endurance athlete, it's about rest. It's about Mm. not getting injured. So you don't want to suffer. And you might suffer in a race, but you learn in your training how to go beyond that and how to push past that. So if you can imagine for a 52-day race, you can't win the race in a day, but you could lose it in a day. Mm. If you push and you suffer and you ignore the warning signs and you get blisters, you get heat stroke, that's it. You're not going to be able to run 60 miles or 65 miles the next day. You're absolutely stuffed. So the idea is like, how can you push suffering out of the equation entirely. Take away this Western idea that we have to suffer to make progress. Why do I need to suffer to achieve bliss? Don't I achieve bliss in stages? Shouldn't I focus on Mm -hmm. joy? I mean, I can exert myself, but shouldn't I focus on finding joy in that exertion? And, And that's the Eastern, that's the indigenous point of view. You train to be able to find stages of bliss when you're pushing your physical. You learn how to get there. You learn to expand it. You learn to make it your reality. In the 3,100-mile race, it takes place in New York City on a sidewalk, half-mile loop every summer. The only variation day-to-day is they shift directions. So it can be 36, 37, 38C, you know, 98, 99, 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And if you are not able to enjoy that, like seriously, actually enjoy it, not in a masochistic way, but find happiness through that running, you can't do 52 days. 
I think the only people that would be able to do it are the most kind of like psychopathic, sociopathic people who are totally dissociated from the normal functioning of the brain. Like you have to find a way to be happy. And it's like, if you can find a way to be happy in a race like that, it's like, that's kind of the unlocking key to life. Mm. There's a, I guess sometimes a little confusion in the West with some of the philosophies from the East. You know, there's a Buddhist saying, um, the greater the pain, the greater the awakening. There's another one that says, um, you know, life is pain, suffering is optional. So in the context that you're placing here, is it more about understanding self in terms of where suffering becomes um, more counterproductive or understanding that we transcend pain beyond suffering to allow ourselves to awaken through the journey that we, we put ourselves on? So, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Suffering is a matter of perspective and yep. suffering is a matter of discipline. Yes. If you do something that you've never done before, um, physically or emotionally, there's going to be an aspect of pain. You almost have to dedicate your life to going beyond suffering, which is the Buddhist path. Yep. It's like the Buddhist path, it's not about like no pain, no gain. It's like you're trying to push beyond suffering. You know that it exists, but you want to get to a stage in your life where there is no, no more suffering. suffering. And you, you reduce the suffering gradually, gradually, gradually. So here it's like, it's a question of whether one wants to be on a path towards bliss or be on a path where they might have momentary experiences of bliss. And that path to bliss requires day-to-day practice. It requires meditation. It requires prayer. It requires getting into contemplative states where we're completely beyond the centers of energy that experience pain. Like in the heart, there's no pain. In the mind, in the emotional centers, there's, a, there's tension, there's tug of war. And when you pull and you push, there's pain in between. But when you're in the heart, when you're in a place where you're exploring joy, there's no pain in, in unadulterated joy. There's no pain in peace. In like universal, unconditional love, there's no pain. So if you can find those states of being in your day-to-day life and you can learn how to access those when you're in periods of exertion, either physical or just the exertion, the emotional exertion life requires, where's the pain? I am now super curious, like, because you have a, a pedigree of qualifications and experience that has got you here, but where did your journey start? Like, where were you born, mate? So I, I, I did what all my relatives didn't expect. Like, my, my parents are from India, yeah. and I basically grew up in the States, in California. But around the age of 18, 19, it's like, not, you know, nothing really made sense. I don't want to be cheesy about it. But I took a step that I'm really shocked that I, I took. I, I almost feel like it, it's, it's... Were you like, on a traditional path, you know, become a doctor, school, lawyer? Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. All that, particularly the Asian stuff, yeah. of like becoming a doctor. Um, but it doesn't really matter what my background was. I was just doing the thing that you do. It's like you're studying so that you can get a job. You're getting a job so that you can get a mate. You get a mate so you can be happy. And maybe when you're 60 or 65, enjoy life with your limited faculties. So at the age of 19, I came across an Indian spiritual teacher named Sri Chinmoy from East India, but grew up in South India in an ashram and had lived in New York City since 1964. Traditional guru. And his requirements were tough. It's like you go to any professor or any coach, they're going to say like, number one, you've got to listen to me. It's like, if you don't listen to what I say, doesn't matter, you know, how many times you show up, like, I don't need you. 
Number two, any coach or any trainer or any professor is going to say, these are my rules. It's like, I want you to follow this diet. I want you to train this many, this many times a day. I want you to study this, go to lab, do all these things. So an Indian teacher is no different. If they're going to take a student on, they're going to say, this is my path. These are my rules. And I'm building this up because his rules were hard. Imagine 19 in college, um, living by myself for the first time, like no drugs, not a big deal for me because I was running a lot. No alcohol, not really a big deal for me because I was training a lot. No sex. A path of celibacy starting at age 19. The good thing was I had just broken up with a girlfriend. And so the idea of like being celibate for a month or two didn't seem like a daunting prospect. I launched into this, I guess it's a path of the heart. I launched into the discipline of, of meditations, of reading, of contemplation. And after a month or two, it's like I felt a sense, a sense of purity. Like in the West, we don't, we don't even think about purity. We don't talk about purity. We don't understand the power of purity and keeping an innocent, childlike frame of mind. A lot of that has to do with not being attached, not having desires, so on and so forth. They're separating yourself from the parts that, that, that desire something ephemeral and the parts that aspire to something greater. So after a few months, I was like, even though this seems bonkers, like no relationships, not even like any, any self-pleasuring, it's like, and it, it, it didn't feel like I was abstaining from anything either. It didn't feel like I was suffering or negating. It felt weirdly natural. Now, nobody would have been able to convince me of that, you know, six months ahead of, before that. It would have just been crazy. So I began to open up and I began to experience parts of me that I'd never experienced before. And again, I'm just 19, 20, so it's like no big epiphanies. But I felt for the first time that I knew what I wanted and that I could make decisions on my own. And it came from this understanding of self. And so as soon as I graduated from uh, the four, first four years, I moved to New York City from California, where Street Chinmoy lived. And I said, this is going to be my graduate school. I'm going to be at his feet. I'm going to live a few blocks from him and just do what it takes to get the most out of this experience as I can. He passed away in 2007, but in the Eastern tradition and very much in my own experience, the connection between teacher and student doesn't go away. Mm. And so I can say I'm still wholeheartedly on that path. So I would have never expected that my outer life unfolded completely from my inner life. In my 20s, I was a vagabond. Like I worked in a local... This is during that period. Yeah. yeah. I worked in a, in, a, in a community health food store. I saved my money. I traveled with him as much as I possibly could. And I didn't have any aspirations to career or to anything material. And I, I, I look, I mean, looking at, looking back at things, it's like that was a period of gathering. That was a period of like developing the strength in my heart so that when I decided to do things in the quote outer world, I had a, I had a totally different perspective and kind of like, and pretty much incorruptible perspective. I knew myself. I you knew what really made me happy. Foundation. Yeah, so it's like I didn't get distracted by things that I knew would could bring me pain. And how long were you in this proximity with the, with the guru before he, like this intimate proximity where you were it, it, devoted? So in 1994, that's when I kind of put my foot in the pool. Yeah. In 1997, I moved to New York City, and right. he passed away in October 
of 2007. Wow. So that would have been when I graduated from medical school. But right. in that period, I traveled with him to probably 45 countries, wow. spent time with people like Mandela, Mother Teresa. Oh, my God. In my 20s. And yeah. it's like, no matter what path you're on, whether you're on a tech path or an art path, you know, like in your 20s, you don't know what's going on. It's only in your 30s and now I'm 44 that I look back and go like, I was so lucky. So in those moments, it was just natural. There was no emotional response up, down, either way. It was just like, oh, that's Mother Teresa. Oh, that's Nelson Mandela. Oh, it, w- it was sheer happiness. Right. But you, don't, you think that's, and that, but that was my reality. Yeah. It's Your reality like, was bliss. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, he would push and he made things hard, um, but it's like he would always push you spiritually to new um, places within yourself and you could get more out of these experiences. Did sometimes those pushes look counter to his method, message and methodologies? Was, and what I mean by this is sometimes I've seen teachers provide situations and circumstances that you might go, wow, I wouldn't have expected something him to say or do or request me to do something like that, but there's a bigger perspective behind that. That's a great question. You know, in Western interpretations of what we think Eastern spirituality is, we tend to look at it in, as though we're our own guru. We look at it from a very dry perspective, but progress in spiritual life can't be made without this idea or this acceptance of devotion. Like having an incredible urge to achieve something and like throwing yourself you know, hook, line, and sinker into it so that you're willing to die for it. And people have experienced that in all aspects of life. But it's like if you're devoted to science, you're not thinking about anything else. You don't care about the relationships. You don't care about the parties. And you're crying. You're hungry. You're yearning from a deep place for truth to unfold itself. And in that process, you realize that you are not in charge. You're crying for something outside yourself from deep within to come out and to basically save the day. You're surrendering your ego. Devotion is that process of getting to a surrendered state. So with the teacher, you're yearning not to please him or her as a human being. You're yearning to achieve the states of, states of consciousness that they see in you. You understand that they see more potential in you and they believe in you and you're trying to fulfill that belief you're trying to fulfill that kind of time commitment they've made to you. You're devoting yourself intensely to achieving a certain goal. And that requires ultimately surrendering your idea of that goal. I don't want this to make, to, to make it sound too woo-woo, but... No, please go. The path to spirituality is dissolving your ego into a giant sense of self. They say it's like a drop falling into the ocean. The drop retains its form, its shape, but all of a sudden that drop can identify with the entire ocean. And so that's the idea of the spiritual life. And you can't get to that stage of being ego-free unless you understand that there is a self much larger than you and that you physically supplicate yourself to that larger self, the capital S, and that comes through devotion. And so with the teacher, it's like they're giving you things that require you to pull out this energy of devotion, of this deep, spiritually pure, emotional inner cry where you're admitting to yourself and to the world in a very positive sense that you don't matter. That it's like you're asking the universe to fulfill 
something in and through you. Mm. You're doing what Christ said, you know, let thy will be done. Make me a mere instrument. You know, I don't have the right to the fruits of my actions. And I can achieve those actions if it's your will or your grace. And that gives you a sense of freedom. And that gives you a sense of limitless potential. Because all of a sudden, you rocket past your goals. You see your goals that you'd set for yourself a month, a week ahead of time, and you feel like you're actually on this roller coaster. And you're shooting past those goals where today's goal is only tomorrow's starting point. Mm. And that's the idea of surrendering yourself to like a universal flow. And that, that comes through devotion. What was the most unusual request that he made of you on your journey with him? You know, he would ask for things that I didn't want to do. And a lot of it, with, with, with myself, I'm, I'm not confrontational. This is a very specific example. Yeah. But I'm not confrontational um, in any way, shape, or form. And that's not a good thing. Um, I'm, and it, it devolves into a sense of not being willing to stand up for myself, not being willing to stand up for just, injustice. Um, and it, it, a, a micro example of that would be, you know, are you willing to, to fight for yourself? Are you willing to like clobber somebody? And there's a fine line in between willing to fight for yourself and, and going overboard. So there was an, an, unmentioned, an un, unmentionable Nobel Peace Laureate from Africa, and there's three or four, um, that had asked Sri Chinmoy to do something for him. And in return, Sri Chinmoy asked for a favor. Um, that favor was never reciprocated. And so I actually had to call this Nobel Peace Laureate and insult him, basically say that he had no relationship with truth. Now, every Peace Laureate has dedicated their entire life to truth. And this one more so in particular. And it was the kind of thing where it's like, this is, this is dumb. This isn't going to work. It's like, you're not, Sri Chinmar, you're not going to get what you want out of this situation you know, by me insulting this person, because who am I? At the same time, a teacher can see two things. A teacher, a teacher can see that you need to push yourself beyond your boundaries. Number two, there's a greater sense of purpose that me doing this might teach this Nobel Peace Laureate a thing or two about herself or himself in the process. Like a teacher never stops teaching. And so it took a while for me to like get the gumption up, call and do this. After that, the results were magical. You know, it's like something turned in that person and they themselves made progress. I realized at the same time that, you know, life isn't about being weak. You know, if you look back at India's great epics, the Bhagavad Gita, for example, Krishna and Arjuna, Krishna explaining the secrets of the universe to his greatest student, Arjuna. They're actually on the precipice of battle. They're about to enter into the war of all wars. Krishna is a spiritual master, but he's humbled himself and he's Arjuna's charioteer. Arjuna is one of the five main brothers, warrior brothers called the Pandavas. They're on the edge of the battlefield. Arjuna looks across and he sees the opposing side and they're all his cousins, hundreds and thousands of his cousins. And he's saying, Krishna, I don't want this war. You know, I don't want to fight my family. And Krishna is saying, you have no choice. It's your duty to uphold righteousness but, and this is where this book breaks things down, you have the right to act. 
but not to the fruits thereof. It's like you have to understand there's a greater will than your own. If you want to be unstoppable, you have to be unstoppable from the very moment you begin the journey. You can't have any idea or any attachments to that goal. It's like open yourself. And that's when you truly become free. And so these Indian spiritual epics were on the battlefield and they involved physicality and spirituality and the sense of being a warrior. And like the question for all of us is in in an age where violence is not an answer, where violence is a blunder, what does it mean to have that pure, focused, warrior-like mindset where you can be incredibly compassionate, but you have a deep abiding sense of justice? Mm. That's what I didn't have, you know, when I joined Sri Chinmoy's path. My idea of spirituality was like flowers and chai, (laughs) <laughs> and that's a part of it. Like yeah. that's the great thing about being but on that's a, a lot path. of people's perspective. Like chai is a be- chai is one of the best parts of being on an Indian spiritual path. <laughs> yeah. But th- but there's more to it than that. Oh, that's incredible. So uh, he passed away. Was it the same year you graduated? He passed away in October 2007. What, what date in October 2007? October 11th. Wow, October 11th, 2007. And when did you graduate? Actually, I, I, I graduated in, in 1996. Right. But I would have effectively, if I'd gone to medical school, okay. like everyone had wanted me to, I would have effectively only graduated from medical school gotcha. around 2007. So you lose your guru. What then? That's a, it was a, it was very, very difficult. You know, not so much emotionally. Um, the, Is it fair to say, and I don't mean to cut you off, but I, I'm curious if you had a level of identity invested in that relationship so that when he left, he gave you perhaps the greatest lesson yet? He did, but it, and that's very perceptive, but it took some time to unfold. Okay. The interesting thing is that although the community was devastated for the first four, five, six days, after about two weeks, that suffering lifted and people realized it was futile to be sad because what has actually left nothing it's like death i learned and this is the only time i've actually experienced this that death is just a veil that there is no barrier between life and death that physical death is not the end of our lives we're on a journey and so i felt that immediately with him it's like although i couldn't see him it's like the presence was there the teaching was there i could access it not through an outer relationship but through silence the deep silence is, was where I began to feel my teacher's direct presence. And so I was pretty much outwardly useless until about 2006, 2007. I didn't have a job. I began in 2005, 2006, starting foundations for friends of Sri Chinmoy, um, musicians, artists, humanitarians. And he never gave me any advice one way or other um, career-wise other than to work with rising stars, to work with people that were as open to the limitless possibilities of life as, as I dedicated myself to in my spiritual life. Mm. And so I took that as like, um, as my, as my kind of like guideposts. Mm. And where did that lead you? So I, I started doing like broader and deeper humanitarian work, big aid lifts, you know, looking and at... you didn't do it on a, my understanding, you didn't do it on a small scale. You were doing some, some significant stuff. Yeah. You know, for better or for worse, people trusted me. Yeah. <laughs> I know, oh, God. I, That's I the so best thing. For better or for worse. I've I, I, I burned so many bridges. I've, I've gone back and tried to repair them. But like, we were doing really hard projects, like yeah. in conflict zones where people are like shooting at you. Yeah. 
So it's like it's hard to like sustain friendships and relationships through that type of intensity. So I'd yeah, move from okay. project to project to project. But by 2011, I'd kind of developed like a little bit of like a skill at telling stories. All the projects I'd worked on required me to tell a number of stories. And I, I, I love Nick's podcast, for example, um, that you did. I've got, I've got, got it. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've got to sell a story to a funder. I've got to sell a story to my partners. I've got to sell a story to the people on the ground that we're working with. And there are three totally different sides of the story. Mm. And I'm the only one who knows the real story. Um, and so it's like I got good at that because, you know, we're, we're, we're doing, um, we're, you know, we're, we're starting schools for girls in the Congo. You know, we're doing large scale agricultural projects in West Africa, things that have no similarities other than you have to get people inspired. You have to get people inspired to achieve their own vision, but to be willing to work to achieve that vision. And you bring in the resources for them to do that. So I, I realized like I could tell stories and the projects that I enjoyed the most were the ones where people were able to tell their own stories and be really involved in this whole process. This is very obscure, but in 2011, I, I came across a small group of tomato pickers in Southern Florida called the CIW. And they realized that if they wanted to get rights in the fields of South Florida as pickers, they couldn't go to farmers. They had to go to the companies that were buying the tomatoes, the McDonald's, the Walmarts, the Burger Kings or Hungry Jacks of the world. Um, and so this was kind of revolutionary because unlike most low-wage labor who start unions and fight against the, the, the medium middle level in a supply chain, they said, we're going to go all the way to the top. And they began transforming the way that big business deals with workers at the bottom of their supply chain. South Florida was ground zero in the U.S. for modern-day slavery, where you could actually uncover hundreds of workers, U.S. citizens, who were literally forced to work for free in the fields. The fields were considered the green motel because nine out of ten women experienced a form or the worst forms of sexual harassment. But this program called the Fair Food Program um, changed the, 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 the way farm workers are paid and they're treated. People can watch the film. It's called Food Chains. Wow. I believe it's on YouTube and Hulu and maybe Netflix still. But Eva Longoria, the actress, got involved. Forrest Whitaker was our narrator. Is this your first movie? It's my first movie. Wow. I've made some short films here yeah. and there. But like this is how I pushed out the gate. And it was not just a, a film, but it was a campaign. It was you know, a protest. It was a movement. And these are all things that I'd, I'd worked on before, but this was now done through the lens of a feature-length mm. documentary film. 3100 Run and Become was my second film. Uh, wow. Each film takes three or four years, but that was the, the first one was finished by <laughs> 2014, 2015. The second film, I said, like, I want to film this race. Is that full-time, by the way? Three or four years full-time? Yeah, yeah. full-time. I want to film this race, the 3100-mile race. If I made a film just about that race, it would be the most boring film in the world because it's just around the block. But I don't want to have interviews. I don't want to have experts telling you why this is possible. I want to show it. So we found characters on the Navajo Nation who'd never really revealed their spirituality on film before. We were able to go to the highlands of Kyoto to this 
pretty ancient sect of Japanese monks, the first ones that brought Buddhism to Japan, that have this, I say wild in the most respectful way. They pick one aspirant every, every seven or eight years to do a thousand days of trekking. Now, it's, they, they have to go up and down this thousand meter mountain. So their pace going up is faster than most people would run. So I say trekking because they're not in a full on sprint. But put your math hat on for a second. Thousand days split up into 10 hundred day chunks. Each hundred day cycle has a set daily mileage. The first few cycles require 11.2, 11.6 miles per day. It's a prayer. Like they're walking through these forests on this very specific circuit. It's going up and down a mountain and they're in deep prayer. But by the time you get to the eighth, ninth, tenth circuit, you're at 56 miles per day. And sometimes more. Now, this is the catch. If the aspirant doesn't complete his or her daily mileage on any single one of those days, that's it. They have to take their life. Wow. So this is, wow, the, is, this is the first question that we spoke about. Holy if you're focused on that, that consequence, which is the most extreme form of suffering that you can imagine, it's like the pinnacle of suffering. It's like where suffering ends all suffering. That's the path of suffering. You suffer to stop suffering. But that suffering is, is, is empty space. That's not a path. And so the idea of getting to bliss through suffering doesn't work. It's like you suffer, you get more suffering. <laughs> you get the ultimate suffering, which is death. So their preparation before they undertake this quest is to go beyond the fear of suffering, to detach from suffering. When you detach from suffering, what is suffering? It's like if you get a blister, is that suffering? No, it's a blister. Is it pain? Yeah, but it's not stopping me. So it's not suffering. It's an experience. Yeah. And so here in this quest, if they think about suffering, they're doomed. And why think about suffering when you're praying, when you can experience a bliss instead? So in this quest, nobody has actually had to take their life for about 150 years. And they say that's because they've been able to engender this preparation into people more strongly and more resolutely. Now, people hadn't been allowed to film to the extent that we had on this mountain. Because if you can imagine like a film crew getting in the way of the aspirant, like if he That's or she, yeah, if he, he or she sprains his, their ankle, it's like, there's no saying like, well, sorry, it wasn't your fault. We'll come back next year. The head monks say the only reason why this quest has remained pure for 1,500 years now is because the consequence hasn't been changed. If there had been some sense of compromise, they might have said like, oh, monk Sanjay had a sprained ankle on day 350. So like, let's stop the quest at 350 days. Let's not make it a thousand days anymore. It's a thousand days because they've never wavered on the ultimate consequence. But you can't complete that race or that quest. You can't physically do it if you're not finding happiness if you're not able to find joy in that exertion. It's not joy through suffering. It's like, yeah, you're working hard, but what are you getting out of it? Are you getting a sense of fulfillment? If you are, then it's like you can push your goals and your boundaries forward. Like It, it seems to me um, all of the examples that you're giving around the running, the Navajos, the, 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 the Japanese monks, 
um, and the other cultures that you're referring to, these are all incredibly important metaphors, you know, when we look at life, you know, because whether, you know, life is a walk, a run or a sprint, you know, or a marathon, you know, we're all basically trekking through life, you know, essentially dealing with whatever pain and suffering we perceive we're having in any given moment. From the experience that you've had with the ancient wisdom that you've connected with, what have you been able to bring back to the everyday man that is practical in a way where you could say, you know what, you may not be a runner, you may not be putting your life on the line, but we all are. We're all on a path that ultimately ends in death. So it's no real difference to what you're talking about here. But is there a way that we can practically take this wisdom and impart it on the Western world in a, I guess, a structured way where we can go, okay, I guess I could, I could do that. I could do that. I could do that. If you can give me some, some things to follow, I can follow the breadcrumbs. There are so many ways to say we are our own worst enemies. Yeah. And most of that has to do with overthinking, overstressing. There's too much happening between our ears. There's not enough happening here. So it's the idea of shifting from being a more mind-focused culture to a more heart-focused culture. And it's not the negation of the mind. It's not trying to become like complete imbeciles. But most of us have a very developed mind, Mm -hmm. and we're feeding that mind daily, constantly. We're not feeding our heart. And what does it take to feed the heart? It takes two things. It's consciously focusing on feeling. It's like we've all had experiences of feeling deep, pure emotions or sensations. Like you're sitting at the ocean, like we are here. You're looking out at vastness. You have a sense of peace. There's no thinking in that. You feel it. Exercises to expand the heart, focus on getting in touch with those feelings on a more regular basis. That has to do, in part, with learning how to quiet your mind. You know, if you're sitting at the beach, looking at the ocean, and all you're thinking about is your problems, you're not getting that sense of vastness. So a lot of meditation techniques, particularly the ones that focus on the heart, start with breathing, getting the body to calm down, getting the mind to become a little calmer, visualizing something that gives you a deeper sense of self, whether it's love, whether you're imagining a flower, the softness, the gentleness, the beauty of that, whether you're imagining a mountain like the power, the rawness, the the elegance, or the ocean. It's like when you do these simple visualization techniques, you're not transporting yourself to these locations. You're transporting yourself inwardly. You're learning the pathways to bring these feelings out. You're essentially strengthening your heart. You're giving your heart more of a foundation in your life. That's all it takes. And then when it comes to athletics, when it comes to life, and you're being challenged in a situation you have more than one tool. It's like, do I want to analyze? Well, yeah, if, you, if that's your job. But it's like in a situation where you don't have to analyze, can you bring out the power of the heart? Can you bring out that sense of like, I can get through this if I'm calm. I can get through this if I exude peace. Now, when it comes to athletics, it's the best thing in the world. Like Kenyans will say, you have to run dumb, D-U-M-B. Mm. 
you start stressing over stuff like, oh my God, like my shoes are too tight. You start tightening. You start tightening, you have bad form. You have bad form, you start getting strains. You start getting strains, you lose all your power and your result sucks. If you're loose in the head, physically, you're loose everywhere. Like your neck's loose, your shoulders are loose. Everything's flowing. It's like you can move on a dime, you can react. Nothing's holding you back because nothing's on. You turn this off when you're in an intense physical activity, you get more out of it. The mind has fear in terms of the negative side of things. The mind has fear. The mind has hesitation. The mind has doubt. If you're like powerlifting, you can't have fear, hesitation, or doubt in any of that stuff. You've got to completely eliminate that from that moment. When you're running and you're racing, it's like you've got to react. You've got to flow. You've got to understand how to minimize problems that you have. And like you said from, from the movie, it's like those are metaphors for life. It's like when you get to an intense issue or intense period of your life, how much do you really need the mind? Mm. And how much do you need other things inside you? If you don't have access to those other things inside you, you're not going to have access to solutions. You said a really important quote, exercises that expand the heart. Um, yeah, I became fascinated with neurocardiology maybe about 10, 12, 13 years ago now. Um, was introduced to heart math. I'm not sure if you've, if you've ever experienced or um, and there's a practice they teach in heart math, an exercise, I guess, where you put in your hand over your heart, you visualize a nose coming out the back of your hand and you breathe in and you, you visualize your heart expanding yeah. and filling full of white light. And then when you said that, I was like, exercises expand the heart. And I started to realize, wow, like, you know, any form of cardiovascular exercise when combined with a good philosophy, it actually makes sense to become almost like the perfect combination for a, for spiritual awakening, spiritual growth. You're absolutely right. No, I, just as you know, when we talk about the, the, the heart, yeah. it's akin to the mind, mm. where the mind is not the brain. The mind is a plane of consciousness associated with this part of our being, associated with the physical organ of the brain. So the spiritual heart is here, but it's not just confined to the four chambers of the heart and the, and, and the, the cardiovascular system. It's this plane of consciousness that we can access by focusing here. It's a part of yourself that you point to when you say like, I'm Sanjay. You know, we don't point anywhere else. This is the, like the seat of identity. And so through visualization, through trying to focus our energy here, either through breathing exercises, through, through imagination, we actually learn how to access that plane. Now there's no rhyme or reason. You can't say like, why does that work? The fact is, is it works. Um, so like you said, when you're in intense physical exercise, if you're being you, forced, yeah, <laughs> if you're thinking about what your splits are running wise or biking, yep. if you're thinking about what you're going to do afterwards, if you're thinking about your weekly, monthly training cycles, you're not getting anything out of that moment. We find joy through exertion in moments. And we learn how to link those moments up. And so why push the joy to the end when we've got a pizza or a soda in front of us? Why not try to experience that joy right in those moments? And like we discussed, joy doesn't come from the mind. Peace doesn't come from the mind. Those come from the heart. So when you're in those moments of physical exertion, when you're exercising, whether the exertion is minimal or maximal, 
when you shut the mind off and you just pay attention to what's going on here from your breath, from your heartbeat, you begin to access that heart plane of consciousness and you can bring in those feelings of peace and joy. Performance-wise, it's great. It's like athletes will tell you one of the best things they can do is learn how to slow their heartbeat down. And a lot of that doesn't affect your performance in a negative way. It takes away the nervous energy of the exercise. You push the mind away, your heartbeat goes down, you're much more efficient, you've got much more power, you have a better result. That doesn't come from the mind. That comes from learning how to quiet the mind. With your investigation, did you ever hear people talking about whether it's in Africa or um, in the East or, or in other parts of South America, people talking about trans-dimensional consciousness where they entered states of altered consciousness where they perhaps had what could be classified in the Western world as a psychedelic experience. That's why people do this 3,100-mile race. Not to equate it with the classic psychedelic experience, yeah. but metaphorically, it's correct. When, when people fast, for example, science is beginning to show that this burst of energy that you get after two or three or four or five days of uh, minimal calorie fasting has a biochemical component. We now know that's ketosis. And it's as powerful, if not more powerful than carbohydrate-generated mm -hmm. metabolism. I've had experiences of running four, five, six-day races, and I've seen it in the 3,100-mile runners. After four or five days, after the body gets used to taking in the 10,000 calories it needs, a day, yeah, a day. <laughs> the 16 to 20 wow. liters of water or liquid that it needs per day, yes. the pounding, the mind shuts off and you enter into a state where you don't even have to worry about accessing your heart. It's like a floodgate has opened, like doors that have been closed for millennia are suddenly burst open. That's why these races don't have suffering. You might have like, suffering might be a problem for a minute or for an hour or a few hours if there's something extreme going on, but you have access to these parts of yourself that you very rarely experience even in your deepest meditation. So that's when I said, that's why I say like this form of multi-day running is perhaps the most natural thing that we can do as human beings, these multi-day endurance treks or two-month-long hikes or treks up the Himalayas, you're, the physical and the spiritual, they become merged. And you realize there is no difference and that you can experience all those deep spiritual realities when you're doing something that doesn't seem inherently contemplative or sedate or outwardly silent. You can experience it through activity. I mean, the interesting thing is that Sri Chinmoy, my teacher, was all about running. He was all about weightlifting. He was all about physical exertion. And it's one of those things that I didn't really clue into in my 20s. I ran track in high school and, and, and competitively a little bit beyond, but I never enjoyed it. So he was a guru that lifted yeah. and ran. There's a movie called Challenging Impossibility, which I actually made. It was in some big film festivals like Tribeca, 28-minute video on Vimeo. And it's a little change of topic here. Yeah, okay. But we had Bill Pearl, kind of the father of modern bodybuilding, considered the best built man of the 20th century. Um, Frank Zane. Um, yeah. One of the only, the only professional to beat Arnold Schwarzenegger in an actual competition. Incredible physique. Uh, Dan Lurie. Uh, Nine-time Olympic gold medalist Carl Lewis. 
um, one of the top former world's strongest men, Hugo Girard of, of Canada, all present on one night in 2004, where then 73-year-old Sri Chinmoy lifted a total of over 200,000 pounds in a four-hour workout on stage. And that included like lifting his body weight of 150 pounds, 150 times, you know, in a sling, but pushing it up with each arm. So that's 300 pounds, boom, 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 150 times. Um, doing a 2,200-pound standing calf raise. Um, it's, it's wild. And all these pros were there. And it was him showing that, like, number one, age is in the mind and not in the heart. 73-year-olds should barely be able to get out of bed, much less even do minimal weightlifting, much less do extreme powerlifting, much less lift more than anyone of their weightlifting predecessors maybe ever has. Number two, inner peace is outer power. It's like he could only do these things. He's not doing them occultly. He trained quite extensively, but he's showing that you can bring a massive amount of inner peace and you can push matter to a degree that you, you couldn't with the mind, you couldn't through exertion, you can't with the physical alone. So I, I basically grew up around that. Wow. A limitless. Yeah, and so it's only afterwards that I go like, yeah, I was, I was you know, struggling to take the 100-pound plates off the calf machine. And you kind of get a sense that this is crazy, like there's like 10 guys that each have to take a couple of these 100-pound plates off and it's killing us. And here's a 73-year-old that's just going, gush, gush. and everything was totally visible. But here's a 73-year-old that's like moving this, these weights that take us 10, 20, 30 minutes to set up. And looking back in hindsight, I realize I'm just beginning <laughs> to understand that. And that, that's why I made that movie. Wow. Um, coming back to the, the trans-dimensional states and the heart opening through exertion, did that give way to the witnessing of what you'd call um, spontaneous healings in the form of you know, runners all of a sudden perhaps uh, being overwhelmed with emotion and having tears of joy or crying or just expressing energy in some release that might have been trapped in there or in the heart as a result of some form of emotional or, or traumatic experience? I, I would say healing on multiple levels. Okay. You know, most of these runners who do the 3,100 mile race have run enough that a lot of that They've healing cleared. happened before. Yeah, got it. But on the physical level, healing happens in that low aerobic state where you go like, I mean, these, these runners are doing between 60 and 75 miles a day in the 3,100-mile race. They're sleeping four to five hours a night. The, the race starts at 6 in the morning. You have to be there at 6. The course is open until midnight. Pretty much everybody's there till 11.30 or midnight. And, you know, they're taking one or two or three breaks of a half an hour a day. Um, they're jogging some. They're, they're walking and eating. So they're in this constant, like, circumambulation of, of, uh, on this course. And you think, like, if, if, if I personally ran 75 miles in a day, I'd need a few days off. <laughs> and how does it work that they can just come back out there? Their training isn't running 75 miles a day for 10 days or 20 days. Their training is much more minimal than that. You don't want to wreck yourself before you enter this mm. race. The physical healing is happening when they're moving. 
And physical healing is happening as, as a function of three things. Number one, belief that it can happen. So your mind is not holding you back. You're not constantly worrying and doubting why you should be out there. Number two, you're able to enjoy where you are and you're in this happy childlike state. And number three, you're moving and you're not moving too fast. You're not moving too fast. You're not moving mm. too slow. And so your body- It's not a sprint. It's not a sprint. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, their heart rates are probably between, if their resting heart rates are around 40, 45 beats per minute, they're probably at between 80 and 110. Yeah. Um, so it's nowhere near aerobic threshold, yeah. much less anaerobic. And in that state, the body spontaneously rejuvenates itself. <laughs> and in my experience of doing like a five or six, a six day race, you know, when I went to bed at night, it felt like I was laying on a bed of broken glass. Like it didn't matter what, what side I turned on. Like the nerves were so frayed. Everything hurt. That in that race, it was different because it, the course is open 24 hours. You go like after 35 to 45 minutes of like REM sleep, you go, this isn't helping. Like I feel better when I'm moving. And it was true. And it's like when I was laying down, stopped, that's when the suffering kicked in. <laughs> and you go like, so interesting. if I move, there's no suffering. If I, and then this is the metaphor. Like if I move forward in life and, and wow. don't lock myself into like stasis, what is suffering? So these runners are out there and they're healing on different levels. I think the most important thing that they do, and they don't even experience this, but they heal on a karmic level. You know, you're literally mm. burning bonds mm. that have no specific tie to actions that you remember. It's like all the, the tiny little consequences of everything that you might have done that was questionable in your life from like yelling at your mom, from like kicking your younger brother, that you wouldn't have dealt with in the moment, but all has this kind of residual effect on who you are as a person, what your personality is like on ways that you could never, ever untangle in therapy. They're just so multifarious and not necessarily like brutally restrictive, but they're all kind of there. You begin to burn all that stuff. It's like you begin to like clear the jungle of your karma and you, you don't have these necessarily emotional releases of like, oh my God, it's like I've finally gotten over that. You just are able to breathe. You're able to run. You're able to flow. And you don't necessarily know why. Mm. So on that spiritual psychic level, through these types of long distance running events, you make more progress than you even can kind of comprehend. Did you find with any of your investigations that there were certain cultures that were in fact using psychedelics as a part of this process or uh, plant medicine that was, had the, the capacity to alter consciousness as doorways to show people what's possible on the journey to their own um, physical enlightenment through, through the process that they were using? So, so my own experience is, is with cultures like that is pretty minimal. Okay. Um, but I can say from what I've seen... Um, in those cultures that like, yeah, a, a psychedelic kind of tool can be important, but why use a psychedelic when you don't need to? Mm. So in these types of long distance endurance events, like you don't need to. So it's like, you know, it's like before you run a race, you could eat a big slice of cake, but you don't 
you don't need to. Maybe it'll help. Maybe it won't. Maybe it's related. Maybe it's not related. But you're going to have an incredible experience of joy and bliss through that activity. Um, and you don't need the additional little bit. And in, in some cases, it's actually harmful. You know, it's like some of those things open you up too much, which is why in the traditional settings, they're very much tied to ceremony. Mm. And it's something that we don't really relate to from a, a scientific standpoint. We look at the, the micro compound that produces this type of result in this type of closed experiment, but we don't look at the cultural context. And that goes to physical, physical activity. Like I ran, you know, 15 years before starting to meditate, another 15 years after that before really putting those two together. When I went on my first run with our Navajo character, Sean Martin, I realized that as soon as he stepped out the door, he was opening to running. He was open to running, giving him a spiritual experience. Um, I wasn't doing that. I didn't have that kind of cultural context. But now that I do, I get more out of running. So it's like in these settings of psychedelics, it's like there's a huge spiritual component. Mm, and it's not sense. just in terms of like taking that, but it's, it's ceremony, it's days of preparation. Well, that's where I would, have, I would have assumed on some, with some cultures that would have almost been part of an induction. You know, the age of 15, you know, there's a sweat lodge or there's a, there's a medicine ceremony where there's full ceremony and, you know, perhaps, and again, maybe this is my Hollywood mind, you know, going to overdrive where they would, they would see their path on whatever journey they're going and it would be, give them a, okay, this is where, you know, this is a part of your journey. This is going to give you some insights and perhaps future vision. So, you know, I, I, I've spent 25 years with an Indian spiritual teacher. Mm. And the question wasn't like, have I used psychedelics in my own spiritual life? You know, do Eastern teachers promote psychedelics? And they don't. You know, there's no quick fix. You know, we like to think that a particular diet, in general, in the Western sense, we like to think that a particular diet or a particular, like, chemical is going to give us a deep, instant insight into life. And I'm not saying that those experiences aren't powerful. Like, some people have had very powerful experiences. Have you had psychedelic experiences? I haven't. I haven't. But I know plenty of people that have had very scary psychedelic, mm. psychedelic experiences in the wrong setting. context yeah. and in the wrong setting. And so it's a question of knowing your goal and having the tools to get there. Mm. From my own kind of secondhand but close experiences with psychedelics, they don't give you the tools to get there. It's like having a vision of the future doesn't mean that you're going to know those daily steps. The Eastern standpoint is like, learn those daily steps and you'll get there. And you might get there with no expectations and you might get there, you know, in a free sense. Again, I, I, I have friends who have launched into the path of, of real sheer spiritual experience by having a psychedelic experience. Mm. Like that shows them that the path that they're on is totally incorrect, but you still have to do the work. You know, no matter whether you want to know what the future is or whether you want to have faith that you'll get there, you have to do the work. So it sounds like from your experience, you're, you're seeing a lot of people wanting to use psychedelics as a quick fix rather than, you know, perhaps uh, a, a door-opening experience. I, I, can't, I can't say that for everybody. 
But psychedelics are obviously not new. And in India, they're not new at all. They've been used for 25,000 years, or they've been, they've, they've been available for 25,000 years. You see some of the earliest scriptures talking about soma. It's not the same compound that people consider soma to be right now. But it's very, very clear that people would use those after they achieved a deep sense of spiritual mastery. Mm, after? Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. And you could say in traditional settings, indigenous used those. And this isn't you know, specific to any culture, but indigenous would use those after achieving some sense of mastery. Like you went through a lot of discipline, you went through a lot of cultural preparations mm, before mm. you use that. Now you can just go, I live in New York City, you can go to a basement in Brooklyn and try almost anything you want. And it's like, what are you getting out of that? Mm. Not as much as you possibly could. You pro- People are getting something out of it, otherwise they wouldn't keep doing it. But um, a lot of it's cart before the horse. Mm. Great perspectives. You mentioned earlier in the conversation devotion um, and how it's almost like an ingredient that seems to be missing. And the more you talked about it, the more I started to see the commonalities in life. Um, and again, I used a slightly different word in my head. I was like, wow, devotion is, is almost like a passionate form of commitment. Um, why do you think in the, in the age that we live in that devotion seems to be, you know, I, to be honest, I literally have not had a conversation about devotion since I was in some form of organized religion. But when you think about the word, it's like, wow, it's actually, as you were talking about it, it's like, wow, that's actually a really powerful word. Like it's a really um, heartfelt, you know, because we look at the word commitment. It's quite, it's quite strong. It's structured. It's got sharp edges to it. But devotion, it's got this smooth, soft edges around it. In your mind, what's the difference between the two? And why does it appear to be lacking um, in so many, I won't say cultures, in so many aspects of life. Because some people, you know, they lack devotion to their, to their husband and their wife. They lack devotion to their kids. They lack devotion to their business. They lack, in many cases, devotion to themselves. So to you firstly, what's the difference between devotion and commitment? And then why do you think it is something that people lack and often chase like their tail in an endless game that they never catch? That's a great question. I, my, my own kind of personal humble, you know, uh, thought is that our culture is not oriented in the right way. You know, we have these words like self-care, self-love. We feel like the guru is within us. We feel that spiritual progress is extraordinarily personal and separate and individual, that our progress doesn't depend on anybody else, whether they're loved ones, whether they're friends, much less teachers, the idea to go to somebody and say, like, I will obey you is so antithetical to Western life. But devotion doesn't come with, before love. Love doesn't come before obedience. Obedience is just like, hey, I, I, I believe in you. Tell me what to do. You know better than me, which is not what we're taught. We're taught that in terms of unfoldment that we know what's right. That it's like you've got to you've got to listen to your gut. You've got to like go with your Ooh. instincts. Ooh. Like it's like all about myself and like being individual and listening and personalizing my life to what I need, as opposed to going like Kerwin, I got no idea what to do. Tell me what to do. And then on another level, it's like Kerwin, that was so beneficial. It's like, God, you really helped me. It's like, I'm grateful to you. Um, let me know if, if there's anything I can do to help you. And that's when you start getting into love. 
And then it's like, Kerwin, I'm willing to do anything you think is going to be best for me. And that's when you go like, yeah, he wasn't ready to hear this at the beginning. Like, I want him to do like 100 days of this. But if I told him that right away, there's no way he would have done it. But now I'm at the stage where it's like, I love you. It's like, I trust you. I believe in you. I'm open to you. I'm not hesitating. I'm not fearful. I'm devoted to your path of being unstoppable. What do I need? What do I really need to get there? I'm dying for this. That's more than like, hey, Carmen, I don't know what's going on. Like, give me a couple tips. That's like, I went from obedience to love to devotion. Like, I'm all about unstoppable now. It's like, this is my thing. That's devotion. You can't get there without going like, I don't know, without admitting that I don't know what's going on. Like, just tell me something. I swear to God, I'll do it. And sometimes we need to be told what to do. Yeah. And the only people that I know, and this is a generalization, but I think it's an accurate one. The only people in Western society that I think as a mass understand that. And this is, I, I haven't gone through this myself, but I have a number of friends who have, are people who've, who've achieved sobriety. Because the first thing you have to do is go like, holy crap, I don't know what I'm doing in life. I got no idea. Just tell me what to do. It's like, you've got to develop a sense of like self-love and you've got to love other people. You've got to go repair those bonds and create those channels of love and then devote yourself to something greater than your individuality. And that's when you begin to feel the sense of oneness, that it's not just about me achieving this. It's like, my goals depend on my relationship with you, even if I don't know you, even if we're just meeting. Like, I don't know what I can do for you or what you can do for me, but it's like, if I'm a jerk to you and you're a jerk to me, that might, that's definitely not going to take me to my goal. And so you develop a sense of community, a sense of oneness, a sense of interconnectedness that all comes from obedience, then love, then devotion. Mm. Sanjay, mate, this has been a, a beautiful interview. Thank you so much for your time. And Oh, your... I mean, you're, you're so open and so heartfelt. Thank and it's, you. It's like it's more apparent than ever before Thank why you, people love you. Um, last thing, the, the greatest piece of advice that your guru ever gave you that you find yourself uh, passing on as his legacy? He told me once, and I'll have to explain this. He said, I needed to throw myself heart and soul into manifestation and to strengthen my heart. That last aspect, strengthen my heart, is, is, is common. But what does that mean? What did that mean to me? Like, throw your heart and soul into, into manifestation. manifestation. That was, and, and this to me, it's like the complete, it's a, it requires a complete negation of ego. Like, Sri Chinmoy would use that, would use the word manifestation as a way of uh, sharing the things that the Supreme gave to him. Like he, was an, he wrote a lot of books. He composed a lot of music. He generated a lot of art. And as a student, the word manifestation means sharing your guru's achievements with the world. Mm. Sharing your guru with the world so that if people needed a solution to suffering, they could access that by trying to access his heart. And so my life's mission can't be about what I achieve. It can't be about my successes. It can't be about my achievements or my films or the, my awards or anything like that. Like I am going to be judged in my heart by how much 
I have devoted myself to what my guru has created, to what he stands for, what he was able to achieve and bring to the world. His achievement being shared is far more important than any of my achievements being shared. And I experienced it firsthand. Like his experiences were universal love. And a lot of the things that he created from music to art to literature gives people a portal into that universal love. What I create is minuscule. So I, I still haven't really fully fathomed that. I can't say that I live it 100% because it requires me to go so far beyond my sense of who I think I am. <laughs> and it goes past this sense of devotion to that really scary area of surrender. It's like, I'm a drop and I'm happy being up here on this perch looking down in that ocean. And part of, me, part of me is fundamentally scared of pushing out over and hitting that ocean. I know theoretically that once I hit that ocean, the ocean is me. But there's still this sense that if I'm going to throw myself heart and soul into my guru's heart, do I cease to exist? Hmm. And so that, that's, it's, not a, it's not a struggle, but I, it's, it's a progression. And I'm realizing it's like, he told me to do that, but I wasn't meant to do that right away. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm going in stages and it's like my progress is tied directly to my ability to dissolve my sense of self, my sense of ego. Sanjay, I, um, I'd like to think this is going to be the first of many conversations I that we have. So. Yeah, I really do. I'd love to, I could definitely hang out with you and drink juice. Um, where, your films, I'd like to give some, some, um, some vision, some, yeah, some visibility to what you do. You've just done 3,100 miles or 3,100. Yeah. Where is that available? 3,100 is available on Amazon, iTunes, um, all of those channels. We're actually going to launch in Australia in March. Brilliant. So theatrically and digitally. And, and other films that we might be able to get um, our hands on? Food Chains. Food Chains. Is floating around um, on Hulu, I believe. It's on YouTube. It depends on the country. It's on, yep. on a, a number of different platforms. Challenging Impossibility is on Vimeo. It's 28 minutes. And my first movie called Ocean Monk, about what I consider the, the links between surfing and meditation, particularly surfing in the winter in New York City, um, that's also on Vimeo. Fantastic, mate. We'll put the links on our website so people can easily access. In terms of social media, are you a social being? Yeah. Uh, the film is at 3100 Film. Yeah. For me, at Mr. Sanjay R on Instagram. Yeah. Pretty much just on Instagram. Okay, fantastic. Mate, from the bottom of my heart to the bottom of yours and also your gurus, thank you so much for your time. This has been epic. Oh, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you so much. Dude, wow. This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know your comments help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, KerwinRay.com, and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.